Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who binge on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michelle Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. Listen to past episodes and sign up for our newsletter on our webpage at michonnebostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters to stay up to date on new episodes and bonus content. In this episode, we talk about the Amazon Prime series A League of Their Own, based on the 1992 film of the same title directed by Penny Marshall. A League of Their Own is inspired by the true story of the women professional baseball players known as the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which existed from 1943 to 1954. Co-created by Abby Jacobson, who plays Carson Shaw in the series, and Will Graham, A League of Their Own spotlights the untold history of queer women in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. A League of Their Own brings the Rockford Peaches back to the field in Rockford, Illinois. It's 1943 when Carson Shaw leaves Idaho for the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League tryouts in Chicago. There she meets other women who dream of playing professional baseball and forms connections that open a new world to Carson. Max Chapman, played by Shante Adams, an African-American from Rockford, also comes to the tryouts, but is turned away because of her race. With the support of her best friend, Clance, played by Bimisola Ikumelo, Max must forge her own way to play the game she loves in a segregated world. A League of Their Own also features the strivings of an African-American family and community when the Negro Leagues were the heroes of baseball fans before Jackie Robinson took the field for the Brooklyn Dodgers. This conversation began with a Facebook post by Tony Asante Lightfoot, asking if anyone was interested in chatting up a league of their own. On historical drama with the Boston sisters, Dequina and I like to have conversations with people other than ourselves about historical dramas because though we're not critics, we do have a point of view. Tony brought more insights in our first chat up about A League of Their Own. That's why we invited her to talk about the character Max Chapman, her family, best friend, and the African-American community for this podcast. Tony Asante Lightfoot, poet, performer, educator, massage therapist, and acupuncturist, is a facilitator of positive change. She attended Howard University and majored in civil engineering before transferring to education and geology. Tony turned her love of writing poetry and helping people better their lives into a career of performance poetry and teaching life skills through poetry. She co-founded the groundbreaking performance troupe, The Modern Urban Griots, also known as The Mug, in 1995. 
In her decades as poet and educator, she has performed in countless venues, including theater, clubs, poetry slams, and prison tours. She has coached poets for slam competitions and taught poetry, developing curriculum to be used across content areas. Her poems can be found online and in several anthologies, including 360 Degrees, A Revolution of Poetry, Beyond the Frontier, Full Moon on K Street, Poems About Washington, D.C., and Roll Call, a generational anthology of social and political Black art and literature. She is the mother of one biological child and has mothered thousands of others as an educator and healer. Tony grew up in Washington, D.C. and is a 20-year resident of Chicago. As a child, she attended many minor league baseball games throughout the Mid-Atlantic states with her mother. From watching baseball, Tony learned the language of the body and the thrill of physical achievement and competition for performers and audiences. In this podcast, we talk about untold stories and underrepresented people and communities. And in the original film, A League of Their Own, there was more emphasis about the romance of the game and women who were in love with the game and, and were professional ball players. But the film only hinted at the presence of queer women, and certainly there was only a hint of Black women in the game. So here we have Max Chapman, who's a Black woman, dreams of playing professional baseball in this series. Uh, Because Max is Black, she won't be able to join the Rockford Peaches, though she does strike up a friendship with Carson Shaw, uh, who's the catcher and team leader. So, Tony, tell us what you know about the history of Black women in baseball before Jackie Robinson and and how talk a little bit about how that history shows up in the series, A League of Their Own. So when I was, you know, young and going to all these games with my mother, these minor league games, you know, I didn't see women uh, playing um, and I definitely didn't see Black women playing. But I knew that black women played baseball because we did in my neighborhood. We did in, in, in the jealous boys and girls clubs and, you know, all of that that I had gone to. And so I was always wondering, and, and as, a, as an artist, right, where do I fit in into any um, organization, group of people in this country? Um, and so then I began to look up, you know, different kinds of folks. So um, in a poem that I'll be reading later, ha, ha, ha. Um, I speak of Effa Manley. And so um, I had no idea that this right, black woman had owned a, a, a team. She was a co-owner and a manager. Um, and I began to look more and more into her and found out she wasn't even black. She was passive a black. <laughs> her daddy that she grew up with was a black man. Her mother had married uh, another man who was not her father. Um, and so she grew up black. She grew up, you know, uh, passing. Um, and so then I started looking for the other right teammates who was out there, you know, playing and shaking up things like peanut. And, um, and so um, I looked up, uh, of course, I love Tony Stone because she had my name and, um, you know, how she started playing when she was 16, but couldn't really get on a team until she was in her 30s. And so, you know, was uh, what we say past her prime um, and had a lot of injuries. Um, and so you see that 
mirrored in the way black men were treated um, in the major leagues, right? So you think about how Satchel Paige doesn't get to the major leagues until he's well, you know, bald and, and old and all that, but still yes, yes. rock the world, right? When he played. Um, and so you just think about like, had he really been able to express his genius on this, um, this, this level playing field? Um, but there was no such thing. There is no such thing for us. Um, and so as I, um, you know, just saw, you know, went through the different rosters and where people were um, and where they were not allowed to play. Um, it would it really would have been great if we did have like an all black women's team, but we never did. Um, you know, unlike what they were, what the white women were able to do during the war. Um, but it is true that because of the war, black women were actually able to then make some um, entryways into um, the major leagues um, in, in terms of, you know, the black, um, the black teams. Uh, but it still was not uh, anywhere near uh, the, the level that white women were able to play because they did have yes. a league of their own. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting today, um, and for this podcast, for a younger generation, when we say Negro Leagues, that was the proper name for them at the time. I mean, sometimes I, I've had to put a exactly. footnote on the word Negro in <laughs> some things in more recent days. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, and then I have to look at even when we talk about birth certificates, right? Some people were born Negro, lived color, right. yes. died black. <laughs> <laughs> Like these are on the official documents. So <laughs> that, sounds, true. that sounds like a poem, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> it really could be. But like when I look at mine, right? I was born Negro. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those birth certificates. You know? Yeah. Exactly. There are films and television series. Let's talk about families and, and films and tele and films and television series, especially black families, that depict we just talked about generations. But, and we have shows that depict those generational conflicts, class conflicts, and conflicts about Black identity. The conflict in Max Chapman's family is about her sexuality and her mother's concern about Max's future safety and security. Now, at the time this series takes place, Franklin Roosevelt is president, and his efforts to desegregate the workplace during World War II, it's all hands on deck at this point, we're in a town, Rockford, mm. which is still racially segregated, where white people find ways not to hire black people in the factory, as we see in the series. What is this series telling us about what black queer women, femmes, and gender queer folks experienced in the 1940s? And how does this series mirror our understanding of black queer women, femmes, and gender queer people today? So when I watch this, I'm, I, like I watch it with almost tears in my eyes when I think about how far we have not come um, and how, again, growing up in church, I knew that several of my friends who would later come out as lesbian um, would never have come out in church, right? And so, you know, they passed for being heterosexual. Um, and they went through all the rituals, right? We got our hair done in the same beauty parlors where you would hear people talking about, I'd never heard the term invert 
um, before. And so I thought that was a very interesting way to, you know, uh, call people uh, out, you know, for what they uh, were naturally born as. And I always say, I know that heterosexuality is something that you're born with. And just like, you know, homosexuality is because if I had my choice, I'd have been a lesbian. Right. So I can't, you know, sit up here and say, oh, you know, you're choosing whatever. I know that what you're attracted to is what you're attracted to. With that, we have not actually come that far um, in terms of mother-daughter expectations and hopes, right? Just like we have father-son expectations and hopes. And so um, what I really enjoyed, uh, and it's got me really salivating what the next season is going to do with Max and her mom, um, is that you know towards the, the, the end of the series, um, Max's mom was like, I didn't have a problem with Bert's sexuality. I have a problem with the fact that she abandoned me, yeah. right? And so what does it mean to hold someone else uh, accountable for your childhood, right? Because that's family, right? So when uh, an older sister or brother leaves the family in order to be who they are, they leave their sisters and brothers behind, right? Their siblings, um, and in doing so, that puts a lot of pressure on those who are left behind. Um, and me being the youngest by, you know, 13, 11, and 10 years for my siblings, I did feel like I was left behind, right? And so, like, I was dealing with a mom that was going through uh, uh, menopause when I was going through puberty, so no one in the house was sane. You know, and I didn't have <laughs> this like, you know, sibling understanding of, oh, no, this is who she was before <laughs> the hot flashes and the anger and the, you know, whatever. And this is also, you know, Tony, who you were before you became insane with hormones. Right. And so that's why um, I have a very special um, uh, relationship to Tony and, and Bert. Um what my brothers and sisters thought I didn't like about them, right, had nothing to do with what they thought. I was upset because I wanted to have brothers and sisters because technically I did, but I didn't grow up with them. So by the time I was eight, I was an only child in the house. So I saw that family dynamic. What I also uh, uh, had a special relationship to is, again, hair. Um, and so I think we had mentioned this. Yeah, we're bringing this up, up. Too, as we're talking yeah. about. I'm like, you know, we're looking at that woman not wash that child's hair before she starts, you know, putting that hot comb in. We were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the hell are you doing? Like, literally, I missed the words of the scene and had to go back because I was like, I know she's going to wash it, right? She's going she gonna to take the child. And how sensual and caring that would have been a scene. And to show that her mother isn't this... Um, this, so, she's so detached, right, in, in every other scene. And that could have been that hands-on care that we have as a special bond between Black mothers and Black daughters. Hair is so important in terms of class, in terms of stature, um, in terms of even, like, holiness, right? You better not go to church with your hair looking a ragged mess. You can't represent your name, your family's name. And you can't represent yourself that way because it was dangerous in so many ways. Um, you could lose stature. 
But then you also put yourself out there. But, you know, one of the things that I knew and I heard many times from many parents, right, don't go out there looking like nobody loves you. Because <laughs> if you go out there looking like nobody loves you, you will be taken advantage of by mm. those who will use love, wow. right, against you. Um, yeah, you know, so it's like this is it's, it's deep, real deep. It wouldn't have taken much more time. Mama, I want you to do my hair, right? Quick switch, she's there, suds, hands, right? Those black hands and those white suds with that black hair would have been a beautiful image, right? And then, right, the drying, how we get up under, right, you know, that, uh, that bonnet even. And, you know, then we go through the whole process because it's a process. Our hair, even when she said you had such good hair, I technically had that good hair as well, but we still go through so much to make it straight, right? To give us those, how do they say, Lena Horn curls, right? That's what I just love that they use Lena Horn as that standard of beauty and hair beauty, especially, right? Because, honey, her hair was always looking laid and wonderful and had that right you know, curl and wave that um, I never was able to get. <laughs> I always wanted myself. Um, so, yeah, but anyway, uh, there was that family dynamic. And even when we go to Bert cutting um, uh, Max's hair, right, how they showed that in a way that I felt like they could have done so much more. Because, again, um, uh, there's an African proverb uh, for the woman who cuts her hair, she has much to lose, right? Like she has much she needs to get rid of. Women don't cut their hair normally yes. unless they're making a real change in their life. And I remember the day that I cut the perm out my hair. I was 23 years old. It was uh, January 10th, 1998. So <laughs> like I remember that day, honey, because it was a thing. I remember going in there. My mother had just mistaken me for a white girl. I had all that long, straight hair and a ponytail. And somebody said, aren't you going to go pick up, you know, Patricia? She's walking down the street. My mother said, that's not Patricia. That's a white girl. I'm sorry, everybody. That's my legal name. That's what my mama called me, Patricia. And so I was like, oh, even if my mother doesn't know that I'm a black girl, I'm cutting off my hair. I'm cutting off that perm. And I had just gotten a perm, which meant I had that much hair left, right? And I walked in, and do you know what my, the first thing my mother said? Oh, my God, you're a lesbian. <laughs> I was like, Mama, I thought it would take more than that to be a lesbian, <laughs> just to have short hair. But she thought that, right, I didn't want men to be attracted to me because it is assumed, right, the crown the glory of black women is their hair. And that's what you will use to attract men. And I was like, Mommy, as long as I got these breasts and this behind, I'm good. <laughs> I got to worry about that. Men will be attracted to me. And so... It's just very interesting. Like all, there's so many layers that that, that 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 onion has, right? And I'm using that term onion because it's also right something that can bring tears to your eyes. Very cleansing, very nourishing. It'll also bring tears to your eyes. You've been enjoying historical drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast where we talk about historical drama series and films as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Share this podcast. Join our historical drama community by signing up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. Now Michonne and I will go back to our conversation about a league of...
our own or their own with poet and author Tony Asante Lightfoot. So, um, Tony, getting back to a particular relationship that you referenced when you were talking about Max's Uncle Bertie, and um, I'm not even sure mm-hmm. if I, it's Uncle Bertie, Aunt Bertie, it's both and in a sense, uh, but it's Uncle mm-hmm. Bertie, the estranged member of Max's family, uh, who's played by Lee Robinson. And it's, you know, when, when we're coming of age, it's often helpful to have a guide. And in A League of Their Own, Uncle Bertie is kind of like Max's guide into this world of, uh, you know, queer identity, queer community, and a place where Max can find acceptance and affirmation. And there's a particular scene where Max is introduced to this world, you know, like finding community through a party at Uncle Bertie's house. So talk about the significance (laughs) of that party scene and why it was important when we look at Max and, and Max's coming of age. So how do we thrive even in severe oppression even through um, outwards, you know, the, the, the arrows that are being thrown at us, right? We find those of like minds and like hearts and, and we form community. And in that forming of community, sometimes it has to be underground. So when I was, you know, in junior high school, the writer's closet was right next to the gay closet. Nobody wanted to be a writer. Like, you can't say you're a poet. That's, you know, whatever. As silly even, right? Nobody had heard of poets making money and have a career at, at that time. But I knew that, that there were, right? My mother had Nikki Giovanni and uh, Sonia Sanchez and uh, was even taught by Sterling Brown at Howard University. Um, and, but, you know, nobody wanted that. So we would make poetry plays, right? And so we had folks that would build sets and we had, uh, you know, the brothers who became sisters right, making our costumes and all of that. So I'm used to this underground network of community that meets up wherever we can, right, and we form our own parties, right, our own way of of getting along and getting together where we can be ourselves. So when you see that Bert's, Uncle Bert's house is that place, right, because it's by the tracks, you know, they can do whatever they want, nobody's really looking, um, folks come in with their big coats on and then they come out with their fabulous. Well, it wasn't fabulous. I was very disturbed by that lack of fabulousness uh, in their outfits. But anyway, because, you know, we can do the thing when we want to do the thing, and especially when we're by ourselves. I was really upset. But anyway, Max came in looking fierce, though, right, with her little vest, little uh, button up shirt and the pants. The importance of that scene is to show, number one, Black joy, even in the midst of Black terror, right? So when we think of, um, you know, this time is also being a time of lynchings. We think of the Chicago Defender as, you know, being this newspaper that's showing all the atrocities 
that are happening to all black people. It didn't matter what their gender was. And yet you see them coming in and just dancing, right? Drinking the moonshine. You think about Aunt Kitchy making her moonshine, right? You know, yes, I'm part of that. I remember those days, right? Um, and just being free. And then I know I spent many a time, right, sleeping wherever I could on somebody's floor or couch or whatever, because you stayed over too long and you, you know, can't really make it home. And so it was normalization in a time when it was not normal to be black, to be queer, to be uh, even in Rockford. Rockford is not even that much different right now. Um, I live not too far from there. And every time I've gone to Rockford, it is the blackest I have felt in you know, many, many times, in many, many places. And I've been down to Alabama recently, right? Because you know your otherness um, and how together we can turn that otherness into something wonderful, right? In the way that we cook, in the way that we dance, in the music that we listen to, and in the way that we turn um, music into something that actually represents us. So, right, those were all heteronormative songs that they're listening to. But, you know, a man can sing it to a man, a woman can sing it to a woman, or, you know, whatever. So it was just really beautiful to see that joy in the midst yeah. of terror. Yeah, I rewatched that episode, at least the lead up to the party. And Bertie said some people are coming down from Detroit. They've been having a difficult time of it. You know, they're coming to my house. I'm having something. They'll have a good time to his niece. Why don't right. you drop by? Come on by, yes. right? Meet your people. Meet the people that, 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 that you were clearly afraid to meet. Because, right, when she first meets Uncle Bert, right, she walks out yeah. before they can serve the food. She's like, oh, no. Oh, wait a minute. This is a little too real. Uh, I'll be, wait a minute, I'll be back because, uh, woo, this is more than I was thinking, right? To see Uncle Bert in that sharp suit, right? In that masculine way. And I'll tell you, the first community that actually accepted me in Chicago was the, um, the lesbian community. There's a very strong black lesbian community here. And we would meet up at a place called the Lion's Den. <laughs> and actually, many men try to teach me how to do the Chicago step. You know how they do that little, we would do hand dancing in D.C., but Chicago's an extra step into it, that little bop that I could never get. Honey, this sister grabbed me by my waist, and she took me around that dance floor. I was like, oh, I got it now. Yes, boom, I can step. What? <laughs> so, like, that community is still very strong and flourishing. Um, I didn't know of one in D.C., but I know that they're, uh, was one in the 30s, 40s, and 50s because, again, Mom's Mabry, who went by Pops when she wasn't in front of others, was part of that community along with her long-term girlfriend, Pearl Bailey. <laughs> right? Um, and so you think about how were these people roaming the streets and mm -hmm. then roaming in their own homes. It's just, yeah. I thought it was really beautiful. I, again, Although I really wanted those dresses on those, you know, the, 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 the ones who were transforming themselves to really be much better. Yeah, we'll, you know we'll send we a note to the um, creators of uh, the costumes. You know, <laughs> the costume designers. Call Tony Asante yes. Lightfoot for, <laughs> for pointers, <laughs> recommendations. Because <laughs> that's my thing. I know how to dress only because, right, of my sister's 
who who showed me how to dress when we were going. Yeah, out. I, yeah, and that was one. Like, oh, no, that was another distracting moment for me to <laughs> the party scene because. And the hair. Why was the hair so messed up? Oh, no. The because details matter, right? The details. When you look at photographs, they do. Like Van Der Zee and um, other photographs of the African American mm. queer Skirlock community in DC. Um, of, yes, of men mm. who did wear women's clothes, you know, as it was then, they look absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Divine, right? And they also, because remember, and, and this is what I, what I was told even when I was 13, 14, we have to look twice as good because we've got to seduce people, right, who might not even understand what we are, right, and even what they are themselves. And so it's like, ooh, I've got to be there and be enticing. I've got to be this amazing, right, presence so that way I can draw those who might even be afraid to be themselves so that mm-hmm. they know And the even the future generations <laughs> look at the series Pose, which is, takes place in the 1980s. Um, yeah, certainly. Yeah. How fabulous. Right. And Billy Porter to this day. And so, and again, that was my generation, me going to the balls, even up in New York, um, back in the late eighties, I would be brought up there, by my divine, you know, five, as I called them. Um, and just always looking beautiful, always, you know, having to be impeccable again, because if they're going to be caught, right, they want to be caught being their most fierce, being their most amazing. And so, you know, like why, why be caught for $10 when you can be caught for a million? <laughs> right. And so they were like, I'm going to go all the way. Um, and I also felt that way even with um, Max's gumption, right, to go out there and try her best every time to get on this baseball team and how she said, like, this is what is important to me. And if I'm going to go down, honey, I'm going down in a ball of flames, right? I'm going to do my absolute best. Um, And another thing that I loved about that party, right? So you see a Max uh, uh, flirting and being flirted with by um, the sister who I think was trying to play the Tony Stone character. Esther, right? And so Esther's up there looking And then instead of them being in competition, Esther gives her that chance, that opportunity, right? Sisterly love, black love, the love of the sport, the understanding that this young girl has such a strong desire. Let me help her with that. Like, what isn't more beautiful than that? I just felt Max was such a blessed child. Everyone, (laughs) everyone wanted to help her. And, you know, we, in our previous chat up about the series I was like well she's just such a taker why what is she giving but I thought about that a little more and especially what you said Tony when you talk about your being an only child at eight years old and what that means but also how people really want to help you when you step out into the universe the universe comes to meet you there and they want to be part of that success They also, right, uh, hopefully, right, there's a, there's a part in the heart that enjoys that smile. And honey, Max has a beautiful smile. Shante Adams is gorgeous, right? 
And her smile, when you see it light up, you can see that it lights yeah. her father up, right? Her father's like, yes. And even the brother that she, you know, is like, well, let me use him to get what I want. Knows he's being used, but it's hard to care when you're being used by somebody so beautiful, just so cute. <laughs> right? I can tell you, I know most of the things I got in my life is because I'm just <laughs> cute. And I'll say, I tell it, I've got many opportunities, right? And I do my best to really hone my cuteness, right? To make me uh, hard to say no to, should I say <laughs> And so even when she is selfish, right, with her best friend, Clance, remember Clance is like, oh, I thought you were coming over because you knew it was the last day that my husband was going to be here, right? He's going off to war. And you can see, right, Max's face just like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. But Clance can't have it right then. She's like, I can't talk about it right now. Like, I'm doing some grown woman stuff. And then to see Max come back and severely apologize, baby, I'm so sorry. Right. That beautiful friendship between them is just so stellar, even when Clance. So, right. Max destroys a little bit of, of, of that that love with, with, with Clance for that moment. The same way that Clance destroys a little bit of that love with Max when Clance starts yes. talking about a lesbian. Right. In a negative way. She's like, oh, no, yeah. I could never be myself with like the sister who I've been myself with, like the, my, my ace. The devastation and the way that this show really shows how those microaggressions yeah. are really macro, right? How do we have, um, right, these white women showing up either for each other, right, um, in ways to ameliorate the ways that the white men have really put them down? You think about when they're playing the game and there's that nasty man in the stands, right? Flirting and, and saying all this nasty stuff. Come on up here and sit on my lap, right? Ugh, ugh. I mean, I, and I, I felt that deep because I've had men say stupid stuff like that to me. But luckily I came along in a time when I could cut a man to the quick and still keep my job. I can cut a man to the quick and still keep my life, right? These were women who were, their lives were in danger, not just their livelihoods. And when you think about Max working in the, um, the screw factory for $25 a week, right. and that's big money, right? Five times what Clance was making. So when Clance was like, look, honey, you're about to go off to war, and I'm going to save this house by working in the screw factory. And that's just going to have to happen. Like, you're going to have to get over that, right? I had my, my grandmother... Worked at the Navy Yard, right? When you think about my grandfather being a Baptist minister, that was my grandmother exhibiting her independence, and she always had money. Even when she didn't have a technical job, she was taking care of people's children to be able to make sure she could make a way. And again, let's go back to um, uh, Max's mom. I got this shop because I knew from a, uh -huh. when you were a child that you were different, and I wanted to make sure you were safe. Financial um, independence is safety. We know that today, but they especially knew that then if they felt that their yes. daughter was never going to get married. Yes. Right? You weren't going to be legally married to a, to a woman. You weren't going to want a man. So now I've got to make sure that you can make it. And I also look at Max's mom as being a handsome woman. 
And so if you listen, when she's at church, see, she says, I never thought I was going to get married. Now, why would she say that? Either is she too having some doubts about her sexuality? Or did she feel that she was too handsome a woman to attract a man? There was just, there's so many levels to this, honey. I just, I've been watching it again and again, just enjoying it. And we'll it. give a little um, <laughs> shout out to the woman who plays Max's mother, who's Seda Erica Ekulona, who plays Tony Chapman. And do you see how many yes. African names were yeah. used? Yeah. yeah. How about Diaspora that? is represented. It's a wonderful cast. Yes. Absolutely. Wonderfully, wonderfully cast. It's just amazing. And the directors are awesome. The writers, like it's all so diverse. I, I, I give yeah. Abby and a lot of credit. Will. Abby and Will, yes. And Will, yes. I, I think we, we wanted mm-hmm. to talk about language. You're a poet. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I'm glad, to right? talk about language. Yes. And um, we just mentioned Will's name. I've been following his tweets about the series to prepare for this and just to get a creator insight on what they wanted to accomplish with the series. Um, And one of the tweets mentioned that um, from Will Graham, that they use contemporary language and dialogue um, intentionally because they felt that the 1940s jargon would turn people off. They wouldn't be able to connect with that. I mean, on the other end, you I see tweets from the historical drama fans where their buttons are being pushed constantly, especially when they hear someone in the World War II era say, read the room. <laughs> so what are your thoughts right. on using contemporary language in this 1940s setting? So um, it's very interesting because I've always code switch, right? I read the room. And my mother was like, you talk the blackest of anyone in the family. <laughs> and I was like, well, mama, look at me, right? I have to, right? Because if I go by too quickly, you mistake me for white. So let me, right, uh, do all the indicators. I only look at language as a method of communication, I- of ideas, right? And so I feel that they're communicating these ideas wonderfully using the language that they use. Um, I don't... Um, I've never been a fan of any kind of respectability politics. And so whichever way you can most effectively use language to communicate what it is that you're really trying to get to, I say do it, right? So I'm a master of all, you know, the four-letter words, right? The seven dirty words that George Collin talked about, honey, I use them very fluidly, right? In, in places to really punctuate what I want to punctuate. That being said, the language that they're using also goes with the music that they're using. The music is anachronistic as well. And I think it's delicious because it does punctuate how uh, the past is still current Mm -hmm. and is still relevant to the present. And how do we mix and mingle those? So yes, I, I do want you to read the room. And considering that black folks are always 10, 20, maybe even 50 years ahead of the modern use of language, you don't know how what we said back then. We said many a thing because whatever we said then became, right, the actual traditional way of speaking. When we first said it, 
right, as what was called slang. It was called whatever, colloquial. And then it became what, like what we would normally I mean, see in, in the language. So, you know, you hear white people talking about something as fresh. What are you talking about? You know what I'm saying? That's, we had that years ago, you know, decades ago even. Um, and so I have no problems with anachronistic language as long as it is really doing the work that is present at that time. And yes, <laughs> that boy needed to read the room. <laughs> Go ahead with your bad self. Um, and Clance being that artist, that um, prototype of the black women who were comic um, artists at that time. Um, and you think about, I can't remember the sister that was uh, published in The Defender. Um, right? there, there were folks who were doing that. And so it showed her modern sensibilities through language right in the 1940s. I thought it was, it, I think it's wonderful. I think that a lot of times people want to find small things to uh, make them stand out as a critic instead of actually understanding and putting themselves where the writers are and then really seeing what is the work that that language is doing. So it is easy to make yourself look like you're, you know, uh, a scholar by being negative about the small things. And some people say, well, you know, you're, you were talking about hair and blah, 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 and the way people dress. But that's not small. I told you what those things represent. That's a very big thing. Right. The way that this language is used is is beautiful in that it shows even how edgy these women were. Right. These people were at that time because they're literally at the precipice of what is going to be a whole different world. Just like the world changed on September mm -hmm. 11th, not you know, 2001, the world changed because of World War Two, our fashion our uh, sensibility for women even, right? Rosie the Riveter was huge and became an iconic uh, uh, a picture for the next century, right? The next 50 to 70 years, we still know her as this um, iconic representation of womanhood during the war. Let's think of language as that as well and that the work that that language is doing is showing just how edgy, how hip, how like, you know, uh, artistic and metaphorical they were because they had to be. The reason why our blues were so metaphorical is because we couldn't say what we wanted to say, right? So you instead, instead of, you know, asking a man, you know, honey, if you didn't want to be with this, then why'd you come on over here, right? It said, if you didn't want my peaches, why'd you shake my tree? <laughs> Poetry. 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 Yes. Snap, snap, snap. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Tony, I really appreciate your bringing your perspectives on this because, you know, as Michonne said earlier, we know we have a point of view, but we also want our point of view widened by hearing folks who have a different perspective. Um, and you've made me think about a number of things, including back when I did a production of a classical play when I was, you know, my senior year at Howard. 
And I contemporized it and just I'm now recalling how there was like some angst that folks had about that too, including the actors in it. So thanks for that reminder. Mm. Yes, honey, language is only to communicate. The only time that you're not using language properly right. is when you don't communicate well. Snap, snap, snap. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, And I'm also saying that because if you read my poem, I'm not speaking in the language that Moms Mabley from South Carolina, I mean, North Carolina, Transylvania, North Carolina at that, right, would have spoken in because I don't speak that way. And I don't want to write in, a, um, in an okie doke mm-hmm. performance yeah. of that. I wanted to show that this woman was a thinker. This woman was a historian. This woman knew some things in such a way, right, so I can write it out. And there's a little bit of fun with the language that I think she might have had fun with because right. that is what moms was known for, right? She turned and twist a phrase to make you go, ooh, what? All right, girl, I see you. Or all right, pops, I see you. So that's what I'm really, really okay. advocating for. So A League of Their Own, the film and the Amazon Prime series are about women in baseball. You're a poet an educator and healer who's used your art form to develop others. How do stories like A League of Their Own educate and heal? So again, as a healer, the only way anyone uh, is allowed to really seek healing is that they have to seek it. I mean, to, to, to experience it is that they have to seek it. It's the great first opening line of Tony K. Bambara's, um, I think, The Salt. Um, oh, now I can't the remember. The Salt Eaters. I just had it. But anyway, there you go, Salt Eaters. And so she says, the first line is, yes. right, do you yes. really want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? So in order to see yourself um, as being worthy of being healed, you have to see people go through that struggle of healing, right, themselves. And so you look at these women, black and white, searching for not just a league of their own, but a community of their own. And then in that community, seeking the healing that they need from that, right, and from those people, because those people would understand um, uh, different healing modalities. Again, doing hair. Because um, you think about uh, Greta, right, mm-hmm. when she cuts Carson's hair, mm-hmm. right? We see those juxtapositions of that liberation just by cutting that hair. How does that help to heal a, a certain sense of being, a sense of self, right? Don't have your hair like that for someone else. Have your hair the way that you want. How do we seek healing um, in a place where people don't want us to be healed, when they want us to be torn down, right? So you think about Max working not just her mm-hmm. job, but she's doing the white man's yeah. job, right? And then he's like, oh, now I want you to work during the day for me because you're always doing my work as well, right? And here she is doing all of that yeah. just to get on the baseball team. But in that, she's finding pride. And what did she say? She said, I love the repetition of doing something over and over again Mm, until perfection. Right. And this is um, 
an act of, of, of self-reliance, but also of self-edification. She's learning something. She's feeling good about learning that thing. And almost as good as she feels about baseball. She's like, mm, I'm actually, I, I like this. I'm good at this thing, right? It heals the mind to see that as much as white people want to tell us that we are nowhere near as good as they are, that every time we put our mind to it and we go above and beyond the call of duty, we're better than they are, right? She was a better ball player. She mm-hmm. just choked that day. She was a better uh, welder, writing sand or doing all that work than he was, right? But she's not going to get that credit, and that's okay. In her mind, she knows, right? Why is it that uh, Maya Angelou, since we talks about, you know, does it offend you, right, that I walk around like I've got a dime, you know, was it a gold mine in my backyard, that I've got diamonds in my, you know, coming up through my living room? Right. How does it make you feel to see me feel so good about myself, even though you have done your best as men and as white people to make me feel horrible about my femininity and my blackness? All right. That's a healing. Now for the question everyone's been waiting for, Tony. (laughs) For all our baseball fans out there. Who do you root for on the diamond? White Sox? Cubs? <laughs> You're in Chicago. <laughs> or being a D.C. native, are you rooting for so, the Nationals? Honey, I'm still rooting <laughs> for the Orioles. Can you believe that? I left D.C. before the Nationals were even a thing. Before they were a sparkle in anybody's junk, honey. I root, And let me tell you why. Cal Ripken Jr. That mofo was there every day. He treated mm-hmm. it like a job. I'm there. I show up. I do my work. This is my community, and I will help my community. I'm a working man, and I love a good working man. And he was a good <laughs> white man. We don't have many of them, so I honor that. But, yeah, so the Oreos. And then if I have to root for anybody in Chicago as a Southsider now, right, I'm always going to root for the White Sox. They're the working man's team. And uh, Wrigley Field is a place of debauchery, right? You go up there after a game, it's just nasty. It's, you know, vomit and people pissing everywhere. Whereas, you know, there's working class folks that live around uh, White Sox Stadium. I'd still call it Kaminsky Park, even though it's never been that since I've lived here. But it changes every other, you know, year it seems to be whatever, you know, huge corporation buys that field or the naming rights. And so that's a sad thing. But the players, man, you still can go up there for a $10 game in the middle of the week, you know, and just sit in the stands and have a ball and be there with working class people. Um, I grew up among college educated, um, very elite black folks in D.C. But my, you know, other family from my mother's sisters and brothers, my father's sisters and brothers, they were working class people. And I preferred that company because I felt it was much more honest and less manipulative and less um, uh, uh, backstabbing to the point of social, for, mm. for the point of social climbing. And so um, I like to know where I stand with people um, and not where they want to stand on me. Because my shoulders are broad. I have many students that are standing on my shoulders. And I have my, right, my feet are small and they've stood on many, many shoulders before. 
But I always like to make sure that I'm with folks who, um, who are like the White Sox and the Oreos. They're there, they got a job to do, right. and they're going to show up every day and do it. So this brings us, Tony, to our lightning round, where we ask questions related <laughs> to the theme of the podcast as the window to the past and mirror of the present with regard to historical dramas. So, Tony, if you could go back in time, where would you visit and why? Hmm. So, you know, when I looked at that, I was like, this is so hard for a cancer Gemini to answer because, right, there's so many places I want to go. So many, so many, so many. Right. Because I want to go to like Mansa Musa and see what, you know, the the kingdoms of, of ancient Africa would have been like. Um, and then I want to go to right, hang out in a club with Moms Mabley up in New York and Harlem somewhere. But then I also want to go and like be in, in, in France with Josephine Baker. Right. And all that, you know. And so I really did notice that I'm kind of. Um, interested in the precipice of change. And so I would probably do 1955 Chicago uh, oh, right after wow. Emma Till's death. Okay. That is definitely the precipice <laughs> of right? change. Right? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. My next question uh, related to a league of their own. Um, who would you be in this cast of characters? Now, you can make up a character. Where would Tony show up? I mean, the other Tony. Girl, it, I know. <laughs> right? I know. It's, it's awesome that she has my name. So uh, when, when, I, when I was looking at that, too, and I was like, where would I be in here? Um, and so more than likely, I want to be a performer okay. in the bar. <laughs> yes. Right? You know what I'm saying? Because I would like to see that dynamic, but somehow I would have to, you know, get some black folks up in there to be able to enjoy it. And so I'd either be in the bar or I'd be uh, somebody who would be running those yeah, kinds of parties. For those who haven't seen the series, there's a speakeasy <laughs> moment, which is very good. See episode six. Um, and Rosie yeah, O'Donnell, and Rosie makes, O'Donnell an makes an appearance, appearance. there. <laughs> yeah, it's that safe space, that community. Yeah. Exactly. So if you were putting together a time capsule that represents the history or significant times you've lived through, Tony, what three items would go into that time capsule? So do you remember the Chrissy doll? She was a black doll and you could turn her hair. That was the weirdest thing. (laughs) (laughs) So it was the weirdest thing, but I loved it because I had a cousin aunt, right? She's old enough to be my aunt, but she's just my cousin, Diane. And we called her Blondie. And so Chrissy reminded me of her, right? She had the dark hair, but then she would dye blonde. Uh, So I want that doll because it also represents so many things and aspects of my life. Um, I would want uh, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. It was one of those books that devastated me um, and intrigued me. And like I've read it, I don't know, at least 100 times throughout the years. Um, and might even go back and read it again tonight just because it was so fascinating to see how that, that color worked, that color scale worked, color line, and then within the community. And then I would have um, an African head wrap of mine that I really enjoy wearing um, because <laughs> I've used it for so many things, right? So the head wrap uh, is there in, you know, in church, and then I would take it off if I left church and had to go to the grocery store, and sometimes, you know, your, your grocery bag would break, and so I'd 
turn it into a little satchel. And then I remember having a picnic and, you know, laying it out after that. And I remember one time my mother looked at me, she's like, what you going to do, turn it into a car next? <laughs> right, because it's the usefulness of the everyday and the mundane. Well, that sounds that like a best. comic that um, Clance would be writing, the magic head wrap. <laughs> Tiny yes. and the magic head wrap. <laughs> oh, Yes. But again, we didn't talk enough about Clance. Her character is so beautiful and so sweet and so powerful, right? In her kindness, in her humanity, in her artisticness, in her wifeliness, in her desire to be a great friend and a great community participant. We've been talking with Tony Asante Lightfoot about the 2022 Amazon Prime series, A League of Their Own. Share this episode with someone you know who would enjoy this conversation. Subscribe to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters for more information and additional resources related to this conversation. Click on the webpage link to shop the Michonne Boston Group's affiliate bookstore on bookshop.org where you'll find titles related to this conversation and past episodes. Your book purchases support independent booksellers and a small commission supports the historical drama with the Boston Sisters podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. You can write us at podcast at michonbostongroup.com. Like and share historical drama with the Boston Sisters on your social media. This is Michelle Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who binge on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients or affiliates. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.